Throw this down for a catch. Uh, I don't have a quarrel with you, teacher. But we've been doing this all night. Nothing. Welcome to the Brewery Ministries podcast. This is the chosen retrospective series hosted by Nathan. Will you do us the honor, Rabbi? If that's where you keep the white sardines. Jason. Teacher, you have moved us all. John. Looks like we're not the only ones taxing the people. And Nick. It's the biggest pile of dung in all Capernaum. <laughs> this episode will contain spoilers. We recommend watching the episode before listening to the podcast. I'm on official business. Only Roman business is official business. Today we are discussing The Chosen, Season 2, Episode 2. We are four guys just talking about each episode of this show. We come from different backgrounds, so our different perspectives together kind of bring a unique approach to this. We always start out with a little icebreaker. We share what kind of drink or beverage we've brought to the table, usually some kind of beer. What do you guys got tonight? Go for it, Nick. I had a really sweet pour with an amazing head of foam, and it was just spectacular, but it just took so long to get going. It is Benedictiner. It is a German import beer. It's a Helles Lager, so it's crispy, it's light, it's good. Mm. Looks good. I'm drinking a Tallgrass Oatmeal Stout, of course, made by Wichita Brewing. And this is actually an oatmeal cream stout with vanilla bean. Which is oh, I favorite. love that one. Yeah. My last can. I saved it for you guys until the, until it comes back out here in another month or so. I can oh, taste special. it from here. <laughs> well, I'm still at work, so I have water, unsweetened black tea. So unsweetened black tea? Yes, pure leaf. <laughs> Got Just it. I want to make sure it's unsweetened. Yes. <laughs> I am also about to go back into work and I have to sing. And so as a result, I have no beer. I instead have a thermos full of good earth, spicy. I think it's called sweet and spicy tea. It's pretty good. So return of beer will be next week. <laughs> Hey, before we dive in, I researched a little bit of some of our questions from last week. So we were we wondering we didn't do about our introductions yet. We didn't introduce ourselves. Oh, we didn't. Oh yeah. Oh. I guess we should tell you who we are. This is Nathan. This is Jason. <laughs> John. Nick. <laughs> yeah, I skipped right <laughs> over that in my outline. Yeah. Okay. Before we jump in, we had some questions last week about the culture during, you know, Old Testament and New Testament times. So I did just a little bit of research. We kind of asked the question about marriage. What happens when a couple gets married? Because in the last episode, Kofni was kind of upset because Thomas and his daughter Rama, or Rama, is that, it's Rama, right? It's Rama. Yeah. They were leaving to follow Jesus. And so Kofni, the father, was kind of upset. And he acted like, oh, he might actually lose out financially because of this. We're like, well, is this because of the wine garden that Thomas had? Or was Rama like his retirement policy? So like I was listening to, yeah, yeah. I was listening to Naked Bible Podcast number 289. 
and they kind of go into the culture. They said, and I don't know that this will answer all our questions, but when a couple got married, they actually moved in with the parents. They had this generational household set up. So they just set up like a partition in their tent and had their own room, but they lived there indefinitely. Uh, it was, usually, it was, the, it was the groom's parents, though, if I remember right. Yeah. Yes, it was. So Coffney wouldn't have missed out on that. We were wondering if maybe the kids would ultimately take care of the parents because that's something that happens. I guess they probably would have been more nearby, though, same town or something. But yeah, that's that's what I found out. How do you guys like the idea of living with like in-laws? And all you have is a little tent wall. I think yeah. it would be more difficult for the female than the male because it's going to be the male's family. But still, it could be kind of weird. Yeah. Every time I wrote, say pretty difficult for yeah. both. Having kids, and I'll just put it that way, would be very interesting. It would be. <laughs> Every time I wrote this guy's name down, I wrote cough in the knee, like the body part, you know, because I don't know how to spell that guy's name. But you can also look at they're gonna there's going to be a lot of pressure on them to have kids. Oh, yeah. And so they're going to like right from the get-go, you guys need to go in and do what you need to do. We need to have some grandkids. Yeah, they're gonna hide on the other side of the curtain. Plug your ears. It could be a bad thing. They're gonna say, "Hey, how's your marriage going?" Because we haven't heard any noise here for the last week or so. Yeah, (laughs) you guys need therapy. I hear a lot of snoring over there. (laughs) Where's my grandkids? I need some grandkids. Red flags. (laughs) Okay, so I had one other question for you guys. So I'm just curious. I have no answer, but we were talking about you know, everybody's uncomfortable with the gap between when Jesus actually did the things in the show and when the stuff was written down, right? Some people think it's shorter. Some people think it's longer. But I did have an interesting question. Let's say that a president or an ex-president, right, former president was going to write a biography or autobiography, or someone was going to write a biography about his tenure, but it came like 30 or 40 years later. Would you guys feel comfortable as that being history? I mean, who are we talking about? Like Reagan right now writing a, wait, he was. He's dead. Yeah, he's dead. Who was like 40 <laughs> years ago? I don't know my presidents. <laughs> right before I was born. Clinton, so late 80s, you're going to have Bush. H.W. Bush. Yeah, so what if, uh, he's not alive now, is he? Which he, one? He just recently died, I thought. Yeah. So let's say George H.W. Bush was still alive right now and wrote an autobiography about his presidency. Would you take that as history, even though it's written about 30, 40 years later? No. Better than if it was written by like me or like one of us. Mm -hmm. Because he was still there, but it's been a long time. It's also only one side of a... I guess you're always going to have that, though. If anyone Mm -hmm. writes about an autobiography or writes about an event... Right. Think about a media reporter in the news. They're going to interview someone and you get that side of the story. Mm-hmm. So I, it, that's a tough question. It is. It's kind of a question of what it is you're asking. I mean, if it's a generalization kind of, of, of what happened, but you look at most presidential biographies are actually written right as soon as they get out of office. I mean, mm-hmm. Obama's like going through that process right now. And so they're, they've been working on it literally as soon as he got out. And so, if you look at most of them that are written by the presidents within, within a year of getting out of office, they're already writing up mm-hmm. that biography. I think if it's a 40-year gap, to me, I personally do have some issues with that. I mean, if it's some event that's just really in the back of their head, 
you know, let's just use if Kenny was alive, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's probably something that he's probably not going to forget about. I mean, he might have some details on that, but if it's just the general day-to-day functions of his office or what conversations took place on this specific day, I would say after 40 years, you're going to forget some of these details. Mm -hmm. Especially some of the Maryland Monroe details. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Well, and I think it's important, too, to keep in mind, too, if we're talking about a president, though, uh, how old are, are most presidents? And if you're talking about 40 years after they get out of office, how many of them are still going to be alive at that point in time? But with at least with what we're talking about in terms of the New Testament, you know, you have multiple perspectives that are, you know, coming together to fill in the gaps and validate each other's points where, you know, I think it's fairly safe to say that there's general themes that are consistent and confirmed across those perspectives. I feel more comfortable with that versus just one person giving an account and that is taken as historical fact. Mm-hmm. They look at it similarities. So if you got, is that you're saying, John? So if you, if you had yeah. eight people, seven of them pretty much say the same thing on this particular thing, and you say, okay, there's probably some validity to it because they all kind of remember exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it, it is helpful to me Personally, that John's not the only one we have, you know, we've got some earlier ones and it helps that there's multiple perspectives. So that is interesting. I just think that the question of what qualifies as history is kind of fascinating. It's a good conversation, I think. So that's why I wanted to bring that up. Or Jason, are you going to say something else? Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, is one's interpretation history or is that just their personal account? I mean, I always hear sometimes, you know, history is written by the winners. And so, I mean, when you look at this here, we're kind of getting a biblical interpretation of kind of these people, these people buying into this guy is the son of Christ. There's no question about that. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're getting their perspective, their historical perspective. But does it mean that it's right? Mm-hmm. It just means it's what they feel is right or what they believe the time frame is right. I mean, if you're looking for something like a specific day, like John mentions, where you know, someone got stoned at this time frame and they all come up with the same thing. And okay, this guy probably got stoned at that time frame. But if it comes to things like is Jesus the son of Christ, that's just their interpretation. Doesn't mean it's historical accuracy, just means that's what they feel at the time. Yeah, I think this is kind of one of those things where they put out there what they saw and everybody kind of has to comb through that and see what conclusion they come to. It's a tough one. I think you're going to find that with just about any sort of historical documents or writings, especially from ancient times, where, you know, there's going to be some level of accuracy to things that are recorded. And then there's also going to be potential liberties that are taken by the person recording. Like when they write about aliens in history. Yeah? <laughs> you and the aliens. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> no, well, I, here's, I think here's one for you guys. Do you think that, I remember reading something one time, it was, you got simple societies. I mean, we got so many things going on through our head all the time. I mean, we got our phones, email, and all this. I mean, at work, I got 900 things going on at the same time. So my brain's just kind of going from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, where they don't have that type of stuff. So the argument there where some will say is it's easier for them to remember these stories because that's all they have is these stories. They don't have anything else other than, and some of them you know, they can't read and write that well, so it's just they keep repeating, 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 repeating this story. They don't have all this extra thing. I mean, I got cut wood today or go cook chicken, and then I got this story. And so the argument there is, 
are they able to retain this? Is their brain actually retaining these stories longer periods than maybe ours is? I mean, that kind of makes sense. We're kind of information overloaded a little bit. Yeah, I would think yes for two reasons. One is what you said, information overload. They didn't suffer from that. But two, I think their form of entertainment was probably hearing stories from each other. So they tell it to a lot of people. And there's less stories going around. Right now, I, I can hop on my internet browser right now and see like 200 stories that are going on around the U.S. All they've got is a few. So I do think that is interesting. And that kind of strengthens the case for you what they were that, saying. You can see it in other societies, too. I mean, if you use the Vikings, I mean, our, the chronicles and stuff they did, a lot of that was from memorization. So, I mean, it's kind of the same concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they're not Christian, but you're kind of getting history just from those, the same thing you're saying. They keep telling these stories over and over again. Yeah. 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 I think this whole discussion is intriguing. You know, I've always kind of been fascinated with like the early accounts of Jesus and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's just one of those things where everybody's got to look at it and see if they think these guys are reliable or not. Whoever wrote about the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs. Yes. Whoever writes about the dinosaurs, I'm going to believe them. Okay. Are you leaving the aliens now or... Aliens writing dinosaurs. It's something I asked Nathan about. You know, it's assumed that in the beginning God created Adam and Eve, and then thus, you know, from there everything began. But nobody mentions the dinosaurs in the Bible. Yeah, it's mysterious. Didn't the Pegasus get left off or something from the Ark? You would hear those stories. (laughs) Was a unicorn? That's (laughs) an interesting perspective. I was like, doesn't he fly? They could just (laughs) flew on the Ark. I've actually seen pictures of dinosaurs on the ark, and I'm like, no way. <laughs> I Personally, I don't think people and dinosaurs existed at the same time, but that's just me. I could be wrong. There could be a little overlap. But all right, when we can find a way to work dinosaurs into the episode, we have got to unpack that one. <laughs> all right, how you guys want to drive into this plot summary? This is from IMDb. IMDb says... A mysterious visitor seeks to meet Jesus, but the disciples are hesitant. Tension builds between Simon and Matthew. As the group heads to a new city, word arrives that Jesus' fame is growing. So in this first scene here, we are introduced to a new character, Nathaniel, who appears to be some kind of architect. He says he worked really hard to earn this Roman commission, which was really almost impossible for a Jew. He seems a little arrogant. He's kind of usurping the foreman, kind of taking over his role. Tell me how you feel about this guy in this opening scene and what happens. I felt like it was fairly realistic portrayal of somebody in that role, especially being Jewish. I would assume for him to get to that position in that time, he would definitely have to kind of exert some dominance at certain points, but also finesse it. Being someone that has worked really hard to get where they are, you could kind of, he's definitely poured everything he has into getting that position. And I I could definitely see where it's realistic to expect someone to take everything personally and want to be in control. Mm -hmm. I think he uh, he reminds me of something that starts with a D and ends with an ag. Just, I think he, uh, you can work hard and you can be confident and you don't have to act like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Dude needs to respect the fact that, like, you're the architect. 
you're not the foreman. You're not actually yeah. in charge. It may be your design, but you're not running the show. And, you know, it's, as we obviously find out fairly quickly, the guy gets a nice big slice of humble pie. But, uh, yeah, he's not my favorite human. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of conflict on the guy if he's just being an arrogant ass or if he's just feels that everything needs to be done a certain way to make himself look good. And I almost kind of form with a ladder that he feels he needs to be that hands-on just because he's, he mentions he's the only Jew that's the architect and it's taken all this time. And so he feels he needs to oversee every single aspect of what's happening. But the problem though, is he doesn't know how to do some of those jobs like the foreman, like John, you know, or, and so then it looks like he did a bad job at doing someone else's job that he shouldn't have been doing to begin with. And it collapses and just all that hands-on that he was doing just kind of backfired on him. You kind of see what happened with the building falling. It's just a yeah. huge point. Like we don't I, really know who you know caused that accident. We don't know if it was the bad design or not. But because he micromanaged everybody, he's going to take the blame. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I also think it's important to note that that conflict with the foreman that he was having, it wasn't in public. You know, if the foreman's his supervisor, it's no different than a closed door meeting with your boss where you're very direct and voicing your your opinion. If you have that kind of open relationship with your boss where you can do that, broadcasting it out to all the crew, all the workers. I didn't get the impression that it it was necessarily arrogance from that perspective. Mm. To be fair, he was talking about you know something he needed you know he did say the the salt water uh, makes it harder or, or whatever whatever was he said but he's like i need the salt water um, i think there's there's a slight air of tax that i i think he, he should have had but you know right. john's got a good point if you've got that relationship it is different yeah i've met Still people not like him you. it's like a bull in a china shop you know <laughs> i mean i can understand like he might be good at his job but he probably wasn't that fun to work with so maybe the design wasn't the problem, you know? I don't know. I just think he was a big micromanager. I mean, I just yeah. think he was... For sure. It's not good for work aura, you know? Sorry, guys. My mom called and it interrupted my Zoom meeting. Hi, Mom. <laughs> well, I uh, canceled. Did you tell her you're moving into a tent with her? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're going to get some grandkids. Good day, Mom. We're bringing my wife. We're coming over. <laughs> Perfect. So... We see this temple. I assume this is a temple. It falls down and he is fired. So next scene, we skip over to Jesus and I believe the disciples. Oh, Jesus isn't there. It's just the disciples. So the next scene, what do you, we why see do you think Philip walking out. Why do you think that's a temple he's building? Uh, later he says, oh, my dream was to build synagogues for God. And then he, he shows that building and says, I did this for you to God. That's why I thought yeah. it's a but it guess. Mean that's, that doesn't mean that's what he's building. He could right. just be building something else. It is a guess. On, on commission. Nothing. His goal was to ultimately build that synagogue, is the way I took it. Mm-hmm. Same. He was building something else for the Romans or whoever. Then his ultimate goal was eventually to build that synagogue. And then since that building he was building collapsed, his life's ruined now. He can't ever build anything. I Maybe it was an inside job. Yeah. <laughs> Aliens. Yeah. I suppose it could be anything because everything that looks ancient looks like a temple to me because I play so much Zelda. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yes. in the next scene, 
we see Jesus's followers. They're out in this field and this dude walks up, Philip, new character. They're sort of hostile towards him. They're suspicious. He might be a spy. What do you think of Philip? I love Simon's reaction. So I, so Jesus is walking up and I see Simon pull his robe back and I was like, Oh, he's going to pull out his, Oh, never mind. It's just a knife. I kind of forgot what time frame we were in there for a second. And then I was wondering, yeah, I wondered if it was going to be like a throwing knife, but uh, you know, it's a curious thing. I, I didn't, I didn't think about that. You know, people just kind of walking up and trying to join their rabble of humans there and, Maybe they're a spy trying to get in and get after Jesus. It's it's understandable. It's unfortunate, but it's understandable. So he kind of reminded me of like friends that I have that have gone through some things where, you know, whether it's overseas and they come back and they just kind of have this like air about them of nothing really riles them up uh, in a weird way. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely kind of picked up on some of that. And I think, that was even more noticeable in some of the later scenes, but it was just kind of like, he was very sure of himself. Wasn't concerned that, you know, Hey, I've got these, what was it? Three or four guys here that are looking at me like I'm a hostile. And he's just like, yeah, he's making light of it and kind of has flipping attitude about it, but also is very, he came off as very sure and steady at the same time. I tend to agree with John. I think the guy seemed like he was real confident. I don't think he felt that Simon was really realistically a threat to him. I think he was knew he would get out of it. Aside on Simon, though, man, it just seems like I mean he's kind of been that way all along. But he seems like he's just getting real possessive of Jesus. I mean, it's like he just keeps going, continuous, getting more and more and more and more possessive. I mean, later on we'll see where he kind of more or less tries to hijack the little posse there where he's in charge, you know, other than Jesus, not just power hungry. Yeah, maybe that's it right there. You know what I, mean, I thought? Just, I mean, he's pulling his roll back with his knife, and it's like the other one's like, "Serious, dude? Are you fixing to get into a?" <laughs> I, mean... I thought maybe he's not a people person. I mean, he's a fisherman. Maybe he's sort of a loner, and so you're seeing some of that come out. Like he's suspicious of everyone, like everybody's motives. All these other people later, he's going to say they're complaining and giving their input. What if he's like suspicious? of either their motives or they don't know what they're talking about. Like he's suspicious of Matthew. So I'm not sure if that just comes from the nature of his job or, you know, the people he's been around. He ran in some circles with shady individuals, I suppose. So that would kind of transfer to being suspicious. Which you look at, you know, Jesus mentions he picked everybody for a certain reason. And, you know, part of me, I always thought that before even reading to the scripture that Simon's job was the muscle in some way and he kind of plays this role i'm just kind of seems like is was he really that kind of paranoid though so it was interesting i was watching this show the people i was watching this show were christians so this discussion group we have a mix of views but when i was watching this i was watching this with several other christians and they didn't like this philip guy they were like who's this know-it-all like think he knows everything <laughs> and i could see dude, a yeah, little dude. bit i can't say it bothered me quite as much as it had bothered some of them but i i noticed it i was like yeah this is a little overdone like he's got the answer to everything yeah i I completely felt that way it's like who the heck is this philip guy and when did this become a show about philip and not about jesus and as the show progressed like i legitimately was like where in the hell did this guy come from he's in almost every scene suddenly he's telling people you know 
hey, Matthew, da, 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 da. let me make you feel good. Like, just moving and shaking, greasing everyone over. I don't know, man. It was just a lot. I think, again, later in the episode, it's kind of mentioned, but I feel like it was slightly glossed over. Just in terms of what Philip's experiences were leading up to this point, running with John the Baptizer and being chased by the Romans, having hostiles all around them constantly, not having total reassurance of who's out to get them, living like that for months on end, and then coming into this group. I, I Again, I kind of, I hate going back to this analogy, but it, it, again, you talk to people that have been in real serious, like, situations that are life-threatening and if it's day in and day out you kind of learn to accept it and it i don't know there's a a level of self-assurance and self-confidence that kind of comes with it i think did you guys notice i mean just when you get to the fire scene we're sitting around the fire and matthew's passed out over there it almost seems like of all the characters next to simon but he it seems like jesus still kind of schools simon a little bit to me, I thought that conversation was interesting because it was almost like Jesus looked at him like equal. They were just kind of having this back and forth, and he was. I just thought that was kind of a little bit. Are you talking about Simon or Philip? No, Philip. Yeah. When it, when it had that, I'm just saying. I mean, I think Jesus puts a lot of responsibility on Simon, but still, it's not like they're talking to each other as equals. Where you get Philip and Jesus there at the fire, they're almost talking as equals right there. To me, it kind of seems like. I mean, Philip's questioning him, and you're answering back. And of course, there's a backstory to it that the rest of them don't know about, and, mm-hmm. you know, with John the Baptizer and all that. And I just thought that was kind of interesting in that, that conversation there. Question real quick. You got to help me understand John the Baptizer. Is he Jesus's cousin? Yes. Okay. Also, has John the Baptizer just been like preaching for years and years and years of the Messiah's coming and then suddenly he gets lucky and Jesus appears? Or like... I don't know how long he was saying it, but for a while. Okay, I thought they were born around the same time, right? Because his mom was like some lady who was older and struggled to have kids or something. Yeah. Yeah, I guess Mary's sister. Regardless, anyway, I'm just trying to understand how John the Baptizer is so crazy and wild. But like, he's literally around the same time as Jesus. Like, I guess I don't get that. Like, are they 10 years old and John the Baptizer is like, dude, this guy's going to like solve everything? Or I don't know. I guess I just don't understand him. I don't know. I'm wondering at what point John the Baptizer started to think that Jesus was this Messiah they'd waited for. I'm not totally sure. I mean, he ought to know the story about how Jesus was born and that being miraculous. But I suppose there had been miracles before to that point. And, you know, he was a miracle. He had parents that are too old to have kids. So maybe that didn't make him automatically jump to. Messiah. And then when Jesus actually started doing some of these things that were in the old prophecies, maybe then he started to connect it. This is a guess, you know? I was trying to wonder if he's the guy standing on the street corner saying the end is near. And then finally, like in Armageddon, you see the the aliens shooting down through the Empire State (laughs) Building. And the end is near guy is like, ha-ha, right, finally. Like, I don't know. That's a good question. Also, I just Googled John the Baptist. I was kind of curious. And the quick search says that he had been in the ministry for 30 years. He'd been preaching for 30 years. And then he's actually looked at, and he even puts, according to the Bible, he's more or less the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus kind of picks up this after him. Well, that's weird, isn't it? Does he have he? a gospel? No. He's only a few a- months older than Jesus, though, right? 
So doesn't that mean he started preaching when he was like one years old? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if he's, I mean, what Jesus, what, 33, 32 when he gets crucified? So I mean, Sounds about right. how is it John the Baptist if he's only a couple, I mean, the same age? <laughs> Maybe they just mean yeah, like his whole life he's been saying this message. So when is, does a John the Baptist preacher. die like relatively after Jesus? I mean, we get his head removed. Before. Before? Before oh, Jesus yeah. dies. Yeah. I'm waiting to see how much of that they'll show in this show. Like, are you ready to scare all the kids? Because I saw a picture of that in a book when I was a kid and I had nightmares. <laughs> Dude, I want to know, are we yeah. going to hit Passion of the Christ level? Like, I don't know. I, saw blood and, I don't think that. Yeah, I saw blood in some of the later episodes, so I'm curious. Passion of the Christ how level. Bold is, how bold is Dallas Jenkins, man? <laughs> We're going to find out. So to get back to Philip and Jesus. So Philip, I think the difference between him and Jesus he still says a lot of the same sage-like things. I mean, some of the things he says are, you know, gold sayings, but he doesn't hold back. And Jesus does. Like, he lets other people come to these conclusions. And Philip always has that sage-like advice. So I noticed that's a difference between mm-hmm. the two. And then maybe that's where some of that tension comes from. Oh, this guy's too perfect, or this guy's too smart, or something. So in the next scene... We catch up with Nathaniel at the pub. I thought this was interesting. You know, he's just been fired, lost his career, and he's at the bar. He wants something strong and cheap. So, I don't know, rubber mist or something. I just love it. He's like, I want your strongest and cheapest. Yeah. I'm a lord. <laughs> I thought this was interesting because he's, <laughs> he's going to break the fourth wall here and tell the story about this guy who died. And he's going to be like, oh, by the way, it was me. And I was like... Wait, was that necessary? And I wondered, like, do you think they did this because kids watch the show and they might not get what he's talking about? Or do you think they're just trying to tell us something about this character? Like, he's super literal and blunt or something. Yeah, I I don't really know what to say about that. I thought it was odd and it it felt a little self-absorbed to me. But at the same time, I also felt like I'm not to say that I, I wouldn't kind of take pity on myself if something like that happened to me, but it just felt a little self-absorbed, I guess, where he's, he's just out feeling sorry for himself. Yeah. I'd feel bad too. I'd probably be at a brewery <laughs> on a bad day like that. Yeah. It does seem unnecessary. Cause as a viewer, I was like, you didn't have to tell me that I knew what you were talking about. <laughs> but I kind of thought it was kind of that a was wasted, that kind of a wasted scene. I'm not sure what the purpose of that was. We really didn't get anything out of that. I mean, we already knew, guy was having a hard time i mean if i was in a circumstance i probably would have had a, a stiff drink too i mean but we really didn't gain anything out of that scene i don't think that we didn't already know or figure out i can think of one thing he's acknowledged that he has a hubris problem you know yeah, like he uh, acknowledges yeah. he's yep. arrogant yep. so maybe that's the purpose good call but some people would get fired and be like i was right the whole time <laughs> burn the place down so what do you think of this philip and matthew dynamic this, this comes back to the, the this being the Phillips show all of a sudden. Just, I don't, we do I, learn I don't some know, things Matthew. about, through their relationship, we do learn a few things about Matthew's backstory. Yeah, we do, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Or I hate the fact that like Matthew feels like he doesn't really get along or whatever or not. Nobody's really nice to him. And he, he even says it later on when he's talking to the two girls. And he's like, yeah, 
I'll go ask Philip. Philip's the only one who's nice to me, or something like that. And those two girls are like, "Thanks, real cool, man." But I don't know. I, it could easily be like a dominant personality taking advantage of someone. I don't think that's how this is playing out, but it, it really easily could be. Doesn't that seem like and there's a theme there? I think of Philip and also Jesus actually kind of sticking up for for Matthew. I mean, you got Philip, you know, trying to talk him up, and Philip's helping him there with the wood and all that. And yeah, I can help you out with you know, the the Torah reading. And then you got the backside there where, you know, Simon's mad because Philip or Matthew's writing down every single thing that happens. And he goes and tells Jesus and Jesus is like, yeah, I don't care. That's fine. I want him to do that. Or Jesus makes a comment. Shouldn't it be Matthew's job to be determining who's doing the shifts on the cart? Cause his mind thinks that way in numbers. And so I just picked up that thing where you got Philip is actually sticking out for him. But then you also got Jesus is sticking up for Matthew as well. That makes me think that even though Philip wasn't with Jesus yet, He's actually further along in terms of understanding what Jesus is trying to do. I assume from following John the Baptist before, but he does seem like he kind of understands the mission more than the others. I mean, they're brand new to this. Mm-hmm. I, I, mean, I, I got that feeling too, that he's a couple steps ahead of the others. And I think that's where that, like I said, that Philip and that Jesus really talk there. Jesus knows that he's already a couple steps ahead of the rest of them. Philip knows the end is near. The rest of them are just learning the end is near. That's a good point, yeah. Right. That's probably why Philip sees more value in Matthew than the others. And again, the others kind of have that previous history where Matthew wasn't exactly their favorite person to begin with. So there's a little bit of a bias there from the money and, and things that Matthew had previously done. Dude, he does say that it wasn't difficult for him to leave everything behind, which is interesting because, so he's struggling with the social part, but he's not struggling with following Jesus. So the others in another scene, we actually see that they're struggling a little bit more and they're like, we never know if we're going to be gone for a night or a week. So we have to pack and everybody's struggling with this in some way. It's interesting. He's the one that is not struggling with those things. So is he actually further along in terms of understanding the purpose of all of this than the others? We're talking, talking about Matthew. Yeah. Well, think about Matthew. You know, we, we we mentioned earlier on that he could be on the spectrum or have something else. So Jesus could walk up and say, "Hey, we're going to go mow the yard today," and now Matthew has purpose, and like that's that's his mission. That's his thing. exactly where. So he's not. He's very detail-oriented and, and from one thing to the next, where every, the other people are starting to think about, like, you know, the bigger picture, where's this going, you know, like you said, packing for a night or a day, da, da, da. But Matthew was very like, oh, okay, I'm supposed to go get firewood, but it's wet, okay? I'm supposed to shave the firewood. Like, so he's, that's where I think he could be getting an understanding that maybe the bigger picture, but I, I, I think it's more of just, like, who he is. And he's not necessarily seeing it. He's just task focused. My thought. But, but also, we see one thing is one how smart Matthew is. I mean, what do you say? Eight years old, they pulled him out of, they sent him over to an apprenticeship for accounting, and by thirteen, he buys his own house. And so you see how smart he is when it comes to that type of stuff. Also, what do you say? In one month, he earned three times as much as his father's yearly salary in one month. And so you can kind of see how much wealth he actually gave up. As regard to that, but if you look at it, he has all that stuff and that wealth, but he really, we didn't look at that last, he has nobody caring for him. Nobody gives a crap about him. 
And here all comes Jesus comes along. Hey, I care about you. And so you can see everything that he's given up. And for him, it's not an easy decision. I mean, this is a smart guy. I mean, he had to run all through all this stuff in his head before he walked off and went to follow Jesus. And so it's, I think he's just, I'm dedicated to Jesus. And that's why he has less problems because he's focused on, on Jesus. Yeah, when he made that decision, he was all in. He sunk his talents into that decision. Yeah. So he wrestled before that. Yeah. But once he made the decision, it was an easy decision. Well, remember, he wouldn't talk to his mom and stuff like that. And he, yeah. he really did struggle with it. Yeah. And then he's like, all right, peace, I'm out. But you couldn't figure out, like, the whole fish thing when, the, when they disappeared in the boat. I mean, Tim's like, how, how is this possible? I mean, yeah, I agree with Nick. I mean, once it was a hard time for Matthew to make the decision, but once he made the decision, it was a done deal. He, mm-hmm. It was easy after that. Which is the opposite of some of the others. It's like an yeah. ongoing struggle for them. Right. What are you going to say, John? No, I just, I totally agree. I think the the one thing that, again, talking about pulling the trigger and, and moving forward, once he did that, it seemed like his, in terms of close companions, his dog, like he gave up his dog even, which I know for most people, if you have a pet, you know, that's, that's a difficult thing to do in and of itself. And he was just like, yeah, you're good. Bye. <laughs> Here you go, mom and dad. <laughs> You know, I saw an interview with the actor who plays Matthew. He says that this character is him. He put his own personality into this character. Now, he's not quite as awkward when you watch him interview. He's definitely built a character here that is meant to be seen as on the spectrum. He did say that in those words, but he calls himself very OCD. He said he has to shower before bed no matter what. Even if he gets home at like four in the morning, he has to take a shower. Like that bed's got to be clean, you know, and just little things like that and social struggles. He wanted people to be able to see some of their own struggles in life and relationships in this character. That's what he was trying to put out there. I think he did a good job at it. Yeah, he did. (laughs) Did you like his circle analogy? He draws a circle and he steps I believe he stands outside the circle and he's like this is where i am everyone else is in this circle but i'm out here he's like pluto like, and pluto got kicked out of the solar system right and but it you feels the, like i am too i'm also outside of the circle i would okay. be like no you're not dude not the same way no yeah chill out if you notice matthew though we notice there matthew doesn't get a lot of these like the things that people say which just kind of goes back to he doesn't get some of the well, these oh, yeah. analogies or these rhymes or whatever it is these riddles he can't stand that he's like like a black or white guy he's like what the hell are you talking about you know because they have that conversation there with with philip and that's the reason he goes to put it in your words this is the world and this is me and so he's kind of i love that part he's like i'm so tired of everyone talking in riddles yeah like, Man, i'm watching the show i'm not even living it and i feel the same way <laughs> Yeah, but that's also the audience's perspective, possibly, on the character of Philip. As we mentioned, he's got the answer to everything. I mean, are we supposed to be feeling that, or was that not by design? Because I feel like Matthew calls it out, and then I'm like, oh, I was supposed to take this character as a know-it-all. I do kind of like him, too, but he does have, like, too much advice, basically. In the second episode of the second season... And this dude that's suddenly as big and involved as like Simon is suddenly just appears out of nowhere. And in one episode, he's like that critical to the story. It's like, all right, what the hell? Yeah. So the people I was watching with, one of the issues was this guy has no flaws. That's why they didn't like him. (sighs) 
So, you know, I really don't have a problem with Philip. I, th- I think it's Thomas, the one that bothers me. Ah, tell me more. I don't know. He seems like he's a little bit. To me, it's like Thomas wants to be Philip, but he's not. But he also wants to be Matt, Matthew, but he's not. And so he does kind of ruffle Matthew's feathers a little bit because the guy kind of thinks he's smarter than Matthew when he's really not. And so I'm just kind of interested to see how that character interacts with Philip down the line. Because mm-hmm. he kind of acts like Thomas- a little bit too, doesn't he? I mean, he kind of... Yeah, and he's cold. Gets about him. Mm-hmm. He's cold to Matthew. Like they're yeah. so similar, but one is open to the other, and the other is not open in return. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, I guess I forgot about okay. that door scene from the last episode. He opens the door. <laughs> I don't know you, Thomas. Close the door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you also knocked on Serge's door when I opened. And said I don't know you. Eh, valid. All right. Yeah. He was <laughs> I like that uh, Matthew's like talking to Rama and I'm spacing on the names regardless, both the, both the women. And he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll teach you the Torah. And then Thomas is like, why are you listening to that? I can teach you the Torah. I, I got this. Right. And they're just like, uh, huh. I'm not, Love that. I'm picking up what you're putting down. What do you Move think along. that's supposed to mean? I think Thomas is trying to make business on the other side of the tent there. and <laughs> I, think, I, I think she's shuffling him on up the line. Because yeah. you remember Coffee insinuated that he sees that Thomas likes Rama. He's like, I'm, you know, I'm not the dumb one here. How did you pick that up in this episode? What's that? That, he's, that Matthew's crushing on Rama. No, 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 not Matthew, Thomas. Thomas. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if Matthew understands the opposite gender. <laughs> no, I don't think Matthew's crushing on any of them. I think Matthew's just revolving along. Maybe Philip. Yeah. <laughs> Valid. Good call. Good okay, call. So, but that, that thing about when Thomas doesn't want uh, Rayma to learn except through him, right? Is that commentary on how religion was taught, you know, a few hundred years ago, where at one point, like you could only learn from a priest and only they had access to the scriptures? Is this saying that this is supposed to be accessible to everyone? Is this commentary or am I just reading too much into that? There's got to be a cultural component here. Did husbands teach their wives? I would assume so. I mean, they were the ones that went to school and women couldn't. So that's got to be part of it. I, I kind of took it more in terms of uh, it would be an opportunity for more one-on-one bonding between the two of them. Now that they're away from her father and kind of out here on this journey. And I don't know. You're probably on to something there. So, Far away from the other side of the town. Yeah. I actually agree with John there. I took it that way. I look at it as he wants more one-on-one time with her. And he looks at Matthew who's maybe, you know, jammed into his groove there a little bit or something like, <laughs> you know, wait, hang on a second. You know, what are you doing with Matthew? I need to throw my head in too. I, I thought it was just a guy being a guy. I mean, that was just yeah. my. Yeah. <laughs> I also like how she kind of shut him down too and was like, isn't it your turn with the cart? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ouch. <laughs> I think she's starting to like, there's like some relationship gamesmanship going on there. Yeah. Right. You know, little cat and mouse chase. Yeah. yeah. I've always wondered how deep is their relationship? Like, are they, you know, early dating? Are they basically engaged? I mean, I know he hasn't asked her yet, but I mean, are they is this serious? Dating? Yeah. I think so because Coffney last episode said, Look, the next time I see you, you'll be asking for my daughter's hand in marriage. And I don't know what I'll say. So they must be pretty serious. But I didn't realize 
people didn't date like they do today back then. So I'm not quite sure how this part of dating works. But I remember Coffin also said, you know, even though you don't see it, I do. So I almost wonder if like Thomas and Rama are good friends, coworkers, like just both relate working relationship. And like Thomas likes Rama and like he's crushing on her, but there's not actually anything there. And that's why we see him trying to get the one-on-one bonding time, trying to make a move. And Coffin ah. back in the first episode was like, yo dog, I see it. I know you're interested in her. She's interested in you. Next time I see you, like you're going to ask me for a hand in marriage, but because you're doing crazy wandering in the woods things, I don't know if I'll say yes. So well, it's unrequited love. I kind of get the, the impression too, that it, at least in the, the first ep- episode of season two, they kind of allude that maybe something had happened to Thomas's parents to where, you know, Coffney kind of acts like, or he makes a statement about being Thomas's, you're like a son to me, where it seems like it's more than just, I don't know, a casual acquaintance or somebody that works for you. Whereas like he may have had some impact in raising Thomas and Thomas may not have been wanting to put on the air, even though he, he likes her, he doesn't want to, you know, upset her father. So. It's almost like a, like a stepbrother or something. I, I get that too. So his dad died. So I think you kind of took him in. So yeah, almost like, like her stepbrother or something. Dude, you might have solved the equation then about the whole, you know, Coffney's retirement plan thing. Because if Thomas has no parents, then maybe they would have gotten married and moved in with Coffney. So maybe he did lose that help around the house and someone taking care of him when he was older. Maybe that is what's going on there. Plus, he doesn't have a son. And so when you look at here, you got Thomas is more or less a surrogate son there. He's taught him the trade and all that. He has someone to hand his stuff down to to take care of things. Jason yeah. gets the gold star. <laughs> Just middle so. beer to me. <laughs> <laughs> One of those home yeah. brews. Speaking of which, don't forget our, our sponsorship at the end of the episode. So still yes. working on that. Still need some of those. Yeah. I gotta like start highlighting things on my outline or something. <laughs> so let's catch yeah, up great. with if we got a sponsor. That'd be great, man. Yeah, somebody's sending us some beer, some brewery around here. You can sponsor us. We'll sample it on our podcast. It doesn't even have to be a beer, man. It could just be a t-shirt or something, man. I wear a 3X, by the way, so you know. <laughs> yeah, I would like someone to send me a Big Mac. Yeah. So let's catch up with Nathaniel here. He's under a tree. He pulls out his old architectural designs, burns it. He's still praying to God. He's like he's actually praising, even though he's lost his job and all this stuff. So he's not, you know, ranting like we've seen some other characters do. So that's the opposite of Simon's reaction when he couldn't catch any fish. But man, this is not a glorifying scene at all. Did you see how much snot was coming out of his face? (laughs) I could not believe it. I'm like, wow, that guy really got into that character. He like snotted all over his face and then cried and gave this dialogue. What do you think of this scene? Like Russell Crowe in The Gladiator. I think he's been watching Russell Crowe in The Gladiator. (laughs) (laughs) I should have identified with this scene. It was my background. Obviously, we know I'm not the most religious versed in this group, but you know, something's gone wrong in his life and he's sitting there and he's like, I did this for you. And he's like, all right, show me your face. Like, right. Show me like there's something there. And he's just sitting there. Right. And eventually he starts burning the, the paper. You know, I can identify with that. You know, something bad's happening. Like, all right, dude, show me a sign. Show me you exist. Show me this isn't for nothing. And at the moment in time, right. 
nothing nothing comes to fruition you know spoiler alert later on the episode we have that really crazy awesome moment but i identify with that i kind of was half expecting once he started burning all of his stuff i half expected him to pull a rope out of that bag like that was kind of the vibe i was getting from that whole scene i was like oh this this guy's not going to be around much longer like this isn't going to go well so Man, that's dark. You've been watching a lot of Saw or something. Wow. I was expecting it like to rain or something. <laughs> Can't even burn his, his prints because the rain starts. Yeah. <laughs> Can't even do that right. <laughs> but then the prints get wet anyways. <laughs> yeah. yeah so pulled the rope out. <laughs> the key line here is, do you see me? He's like yelling at God, do you see me? I've kind of been there too. I think I told you guys before. Your face. Yeah, I, I moved to Austin to be a musician. And I, I kind of thought that was like part of my purpose or something was to be a musician and make an impact that way. Well, I got down there, I started singing, had some gigs and stuff. And my vocal cord got paralyzed and it never 100% recovered. That's how I ended up here in Kansas. That whole thing pretty drastically changed my life. I actually went through a faith crisis at that point. I remember walking downtown in Austin to the doctor's office. I think it was after my appointment and I didn't get very good news. They did a video strobe and they were like, look, we don't know what's going on here. It's paralyzed. We don't know when it's ever going to get better. And I pretty much had this why dialogue similar to him and like, why am I even here then? And I'm a useless human being if I can't use my voice and stuff, which I know that's really taking it to an extreme and that stuff's not true, but I did have a moment like this. So I did resonate with him too. Isn't there like another message there in that? I mean, it seems like people only seek for God, you know, for God's guidance when bad stuff happens when you're down and out. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he would have, I mean, when good things are happening to people necessarily, you know, set the tree, oh, thank you. I did this things and all that. And, you know, show me your face and all that. And, did you see what I did? Typically, it's just when bad things are kind of happening. Yeah. I'll go ahead. It's like we have a propensity to, you know, feel sorry for ourselves a lot of times as well, where it, which is natural. I mean, I think everybody goes through something like that at, at some point in time. But I also thought it was interesting that, you know, he cries out to God. He didn't get the response that he was looking for right that moment. But later in the episode, we, you know, God basically responds to him. It's just not in the way that he wanted or was expecting. I see, Jason, what you were saying, I resonate with that too, because I'm bad at being thankful, you know, when things are going well. I guess for the last few years, I've been bad at like enjoying life or appreciating the good things anyways. Like it takes a lot more to get me to have fun or something. I'm like, Uh in this brooding, I'm trying to get out of it, but you know, I've gotten in this habit of like five or more years of like brooding, like Batman all the time. (laughs) So that joy piece, a struggle for me, you know, with some of the stuff I've had to deal with in life. So yeah, I identify with what you're saying. I guess I was kind of impressed with Nathaniel in his approach because he does start out like thanking God. And I thought, wow, like I'd probably be more like Simon, like, fine (laughs) with him on the boat yeah but i'm trying to be more like this guy now i guess so something generally speaking think about last episode he's talking to the shepherd uh the sheepherder 
and he says, Jesus isn't here for the 99, he's here for the one stray, right? So if we assume that we're all, you know, following the teachings of God, right? Does God really care whether we thank him or curse him as long as we're following it? He's, is he really going to pay attention to us or is he chasing that one missing sheep? Hmm. What do you guys think? I think, wow, man, you really thought about that. <laughs> That's awesome, though. Isn't there, I mean, only people would say he's a jealous God. So, I mean, I think he does, like, I would, I'm assuming. So, I think he loves everybody. But when one person, I guess, leaves the family, right, he'll go pursue them because they, they need him. He wants them back in the family. So, that's kind of the way I look at it. It's not like he doesn't love the people who are in the family. But, I mean, when somebody leaves your family, that's going to take all your attention, you know? Oh, you're like filming in a haunted house there. <laughs> it's it's getting dark outside. <laughs> so let's jump up to the situation with Simon. Simon and Jesus are walking, and Simon strikes up this conversation wanting more structure and flow of information. He wants there to be a more specific way about how decisions are made. What did you think about this whole dialogue between Jesus and Matthew? You mean Simon? Mm. Yes, Simon. Simon. Oh, yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't recall the, the dialogue with Jesus and Matthew. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what did you think of this dialogue between <laughs> Jesus and Simon? So one of the first things that I thought was kind of interesting was Simon had described everyone as being united behind Jesus. And Jesus questioned that in a, a very tactful way. <laughs> I I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was something like, "Oh, are you?" <laughs> like, uh, so everybody's on the same page. <laughs> like, Tell me more. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting, and again, the tactfulness of the interactions there, I really appreciate. Where it's more of like a gentle guidance to let you discover the answer on your own, versus giving it to you directly. Yeah, I love that. Every time Jesus is on screen to me, I'm kind of like fascinated now. Doesn't he kind of scold Simon a little bit? I mean, I think he kind of sees what Simon's trying to do there. He's trying to put himself in charge of everybody else. But then, I mean, just like John said, he's like, I'll do you. I see. But he's like, he kind of scolds him, but he says, I'm not going to go into these examples. What do you say? But I mean, there's some things there that it's just interesting the way he kind of deals with Simon, though. He doesn't really like Simon quit doing it, man. You're just I'm tired of your mouth. Stop trying to hijack the system. You know, stop trying to boss everybody around. You're not in charge, dude. I am. That's what I felt like Jesus would say, but he doesn't really do that. He just kind of corrects him. He kind of nudges him in the right direction. Jesus, actually, something I, I picked up in this conversation, and in the two episodes this season, I feel like I've heard it more than I did all of the first season. Jesus actually mentioned something about, like, yeah, I'm not going to be here forever. And, and I feel like we've talked about Jesus not being around more in these two episodes than the other. And I forgot exactly what he says to Simon. Uh, but you know, he basically alludes to, yeah, I'm not going to be around forever. It's like, oh, and it, it it makes me wonder. You know, there's always been the question for me, at least. We talked about this on last season. Does Jesus know what's going to happen to him, or when does he find out what's going to happen? And you know, we get kind of a an example that he knows the end is near. I think he kind of. He knows because he kind of alludes to it. He's like, he doesn't know how to tell him yet. Or he's like, he hasn't told him yet. And even when he talks to fire, around the fire, he talks to him. 
Yeah. Philip knows. To me, I get the idea that Philip knows too. And so, because Jesus is like, I haven't told him yet or I haven't figured out how I'm going to tell him. And so it's. There's little hints like that in the gospel too that imply that he knows what he's about to face. I would think if he knew the Old Testament writings about the Messiah figure, I mean, they say he's going to be killed on a tree. So he's got to know. One of the things I, I also found pretty interesting about this scene, and it kind of clicked for me, was looking at it from a leadership perspective. Anyone who's done any sort of like team leadership or even sports, anything like that, where you're working with a group of people, you have a designated head and then all these different personalities that you're trying to corral and keep on task. I definitely think that there's some takeaways in terms of how Jesus is presented in this show that apply to like the workplace, even, you know, managing other people, you know, it's never necessarily anger, you know, he'll banter with them a little bit, but it's always wanting them to succeed. It's more of a coaching perspective on corralling the group and getting everyone in the same direction that is, it seems to be flawlessly executed in every sort of conflict that they've experienced up to this point. I, I found that kind of interesting. Yeah, it made me think, like, who wrote the show? Like, it's not like it was just a bunch of people who know scripture really well or ancient culture. It's like they had a therapist that they consulted with and a psychologist or all these different people. I noticed that Jesus, like, he basically, like, he takes a really healthy communication route with Simon because he could say, look, you're worrying too much or something like that. You're being irrational. But instead, he said, I wrote down... You strike me as somebody who acts on instinct or feeling. I mean, that could have been a negative. He's highlighting what Simon's doing wrong, but he's not saying it in a way like, you know, you worry too much or like a dismissive way. And he gives them like three or four compliments before he finally, he tells them like, you do do this wrong or you do this too much, but I like this about you. Like he really made a compliment sandwich there to make it easy for Simon to hear. It's good leadership skills. It is. They told him he's going to be he's going to be important later on, or he's going to have more responsibility. Yeah, which he's kind of told others that too. So I was curious about that structure comment though, because Jesus says something like there will be a time when more structure is needed. I wonder, like, if you could go back and talk to Jesus about what that meant. He doesn't necessarily mean the institution of the church, does he? Like that kind of structure. I mean. I don't know. What does he mean by more structure? Not that some kind of governing body is a bad thing. I'm just trying to figure out, like, what exactly do you think he would have foreseen structure to mean, ideally? I don't necessarily think it it was referencing the church. That's not how I took it. I took it more to mean that after he's gone, the roles of the disciples uh, being very defined and what their task and responsibilities would be. Not necessarily like a hierarchy with that, but more of a, a structure, more solid bearings on the direction that they needed to take once he was gone. That was kind of how I bypassed that whole comment and didn't think too much on it after. Yeah, I think you're right. Do you think that's what he meant indefinitely moving forward? Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like at this point, the show 
everyone's still trying to figure out their place, right? We've got this kind of ragtag band or a group that's finally coming together, but things still aren't smooth. Everyone's, you know, there's still conflict internally. They're all trying to figure out where they fit and thinking of it more in terms of a hierarchy to where he's basically dismissing that in terms of, hey, for right now, all you need to worry about is what I tell you and just come along with me. And later down the road, we'll have that definition that you need. Again, that's kind of my takeaway. Yeah, I think I agree with John there. I, I think we're a bit too early on in the process, if you will, for him to be talking about like the establishment of church. I was going to say, I don't know what, exactly what the disciples did once Jesus died, resurrected, and all that jazz. But I assume that they still continued until they were killed to spread the word. And at that point, you know, they all had tasks and they had kind of a leadership role to spread the word. So I'm wondering if that's what he was alluding to. But I, I think we're a bit too early for him to have been talking about the establishment of church. Yeah. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, I'm not sure what you thought about that. I mean, it could mean anything. I mean, you look at the just the idea of the canon of the Bible. I mean, that's some, some sort of a structure. I mean, you can interpret that structure differently. I mean, he could be thinking long term, lay that far up, or he could be thinking, you know, short term. I mean, when it comes time where he gets arrested and all that, I mean, the disciples are going to need each other. I mean, you're going to pretty much the only people they have is each other. So you need some structure there as well when it comes to that, kind of keep everything together. Yeah, I think right now it's just kind of like everybody just kind of do their thing. And I almost think that's why he's, he mentions, you know, everybody has a job. Everybody's good at something. That's why he picks them. He's kind of putting this group together. This Everybody's got a strength. I like all of you guys' answers. And I think you guys are are probably all on track there. I thought, surely they don't mean like, you know, the structure of religion today, because it just doesn't look hardly anything like what he's doing. (laughs) Like, even on a relational level, we'd almost be better off, like watching this show and like trying to recreate what they do in real life now than we would be if we just studied what's going on today in religion and tried to keep doing that as good as we can do it, you know? Oh, we can get segued, we can get deep. (laughs) I kind of almost think that you look at, I watched, before I watched this one, I watched Dallas talk when he was asking for his hundred million dollars to make <laughs> to make five more seasons, but I, and he even says it. I think sometimes they put things in there like that structure just so people like us will have a podcast and, and debate that. <laughs> and I think he just that's the sole purpose of you know some of the things that happen in the series. Is, mm-hmm. We don't know. Did you just really say that? We don't know if he said that or not. You know, if he did say it, what does he mean by it? We, we don't know. You know, we're sitting here talking about it, so I mean, that's kind of fostering discussion. It's been referenced, I don't know where, I've heard it in multiple like shows or books and things like that. I'm sure it's an actual literary reference in the Bible that church is not defined by the building with the bell and the cross. Like Church is defined as a group of people getting together to worship and honor God, right? Whether that's standing in the middle of a field with a bunch of kids or in the church with the bell and the cross. Like, so... I think kind of what you said, if we get back to how church was back then, maybe it wouldn't be so jacked as it is today. Yes, you're right. So something has happened in modern society where we hear church and we all think building. I work in a church. And when I hear the word church, I know that church is supposed to be people. That's what Jesus meant. But I see a building flash before my eyes before I can correct that thought to think people. That is just somehow how we've been trained by society, how a lot of people see church. I can't explain why that happened. It's just something that happened. 
So they either think building or they think institution. Of course, we use that term a lot. Church I means it's kind of interchangeable. I mean, when you say church, what are you talking about? You talk about the people, or you talking about the institution? We talk about the institution. We're talking about not necessarily building, but those in charge. That becomes kind of the. Isn't there also a verse in the Bible that says that church is not required? I mean, you can pray and by yourself and mm-hmm. talk with God with, without gathering. Mm-hmm. See, to me, this is a very effective form of church, like this podcast. To me, I can't recall the exact verse, but I think it's something like if two or more come together uh, in my name, it's considered, you know, congregating. I'd have to look it up. I'm sorry. I don't know where it's from. Either. <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about, though. But I know yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. I don't define myself as an individual person. I define myself as non-defined. Alien? Yeah, alien. You cannot, you cannot, <laughs> I'm, I'm not quantified. I'm not quantified as a human. I love it. So I think that leaves dinosaurs for the rest of us. Or I, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure yep. where this is going. I was waiting for the aliens brought the dinosaurs discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Toy with me. So let's take a look at the very last scene here. So Philip is going to arrive at Nathaniel's house. Nathaniel's super depressed. He doesn't know what to do next, obviously. So Philip takes Nathaniel to meet Jesus. And we see Jesus tell him, when you were at your lowest moment under the fig tree, I saw you. So tell me about this scene. And tell me if you knew the story in the Bible before seeing the scene. So if someone doesn't answer the door, you just climb through the window. <laughs> I mean, I got friends who might do that. Before. Yeah, Purdy's climbed through my window before. <laughs> I was worried about you. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that didn't I explain why you were a long time afterwards. <laughs> the window. <laughs> so that really happened. Oh, a couple times. <laughs> At the same time, it wasn't like we had gone like, I don't know, six months without seeing or talking to each other. And then it might have been uh, like six minutes. I don't know. Yeah. It was more like, I'm worried about you. I'm coming in. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. If we hadn't spoken in like a year, even a month, I wouldn't just enter your residence. <laughs> it's, it's a little different, though. I mean, obviously, the, did Philip know that Nathaniel had lost his job and was struggling? I don't think he did. No. The, the oh, thing is, well. is, is Nathaniel just kind of like, oh, hey, Philip, how you doing? You know, if, he's there, <laughs> like, if I hadn't seen someone for like six months and they're next to my bed waking me up, I'm like, what the heck are you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> but where well, I was hey, going with mine was like, it's not like nowadays where like I have to look through the glass to see like your house. It's like, it's like here, let me move aside the, the curtain covering the opening <laughs> in your rock. Oh, you're just laying there. All right, let me climb in. Hey, he looks dead. Yeah. Hey, man, you alive? Why ain't you at work, man? Why are you sleeping during the day? I like it, though. He's like, dude, you got to come see this. You got to come see this guy. Just go see him. Talk to him. Meet him. And Nathaniel's like, oh, he's the one. The one. He's like, yeah, man, I'm the one. And then Bill Daniel goes and meets him. But then Jesus knows him as soon as he kind of introduces him. I mean, Jesus is like, yeah. oh, yeah, I know. He's, yeah. You know, he's, he's Jesus is like, yeah, man, I saw you. I saw you. I saw you under that tree, burning my stuff. I saw you. Yeah. But actually, that's the, for me, it actually raises another question, too. This whole debate is Jesus and God, one person. I mean, you hear people say, you know, some Christians say they are, just, are the one and the same, and some will say they're separate. Then this one almost alludes like they're one and the same, because he's like, I saw you. Like, okay, why do you say I saw you? Why do you say my father saw you? It's the holy triumvirate. Yeah, so this the is... Triforce. 
This is difficult to figure out. The reason being is it seems like they're the same in places in the New Testament. And in other places, it seems like Jesus does not have access to everything that God knows. So I think what it is coming from my beliefs, Jesus is God, but they're like separate but overlapping, right? So when Jesus becomes a human, he doesn't necessarily have access to everything, but he knows way more than a human should. That's the way I look at it. I've heard people say it's like an egg, like the white and the, was it the yellow part, the yolk? And also you can throw in the Holy Spirit and the shell or three different entities, but they're all the same thing. They're all the one egg. Mm -hmm. That's not a bad Trinity analogy, but it's like, this is not an easy concept. It's like, you're always going to have some questions about it how the pieces fit together. The interesting thing about this story is I actually never understood the story in the Bible the way it's presented in the show before. I'll tell you why. I always read that thing where Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And then Nathaniel believes that Jesus is the Messiah. So then Jesus says, because I said, I saw you under the fig tree, you believed. It's like, I'm like, I don't get what the big deal is. He saw him sitting under a fig tree. Was it like five minutes ago, they walked by and then later he comes back and I never got that he wasn't there. But now when I read the story, I do think that's probably what it means because, you know, he, it looks like it's a miraculous thing. And I never caught that before. I was literally like, what's the big deal? He saw him sleeping under a fig tree. Like, I thought Jesus was actually there when he saw him. But that line later makes it look like Jesus wasn't there in the Bible. So I actually learned what I think the story is supposed to mean from this episode. (laughs) I don't know about you. 30 years later, he finally figured it out. I know. I've read this several times and I'm I'm always like, huh? (laughs) So when I find out what it really means... I think it's a pretty awesome story. I mean, I found this scene to be really moving. And what Jesus can convey with his emotions, like he's very comfortable showing compassion in a way that most guys are probably not. You know, we all look away. We don't want to make eye contact. There's just something different going on with him. I think it's really moving. I thought the scene was very interesting. Uh, Again, just in terms of, it was almost like, Philip was there, but it wasn't really being addressed. And it was like a direct, like laser focus on, on Nathaniel in terms of like, I'm talking to you. I know what you did. I know where you were. When you cried out, I was there. I heard you. He doesn't get what I'm talking about. So ignore him. <laughs> like <laughs> That was kind of the takeaway I had from it. <laughs> I agree with John. I think it was a real intimate moment there with Jesus and Nathaniel. I think Philip was just kind of the avenue to bring them together. And when she looked early on, Philip asked Jesus to, you know, hey, can you make a detour to go see my friend? It didn't seem like Jesus was kind of really open to making detours. He's kind of did his own thing. But this time he kind of, oh, yeah, yeah let's go see a friend. You know, what's the world without friends? So it's kind of like he already knew what was going to happen. He was going to run into Nathaniel. What about you, Nick? You got anything else? Right. I mean, just the, the same same as those two guys. It, it was a very intimate moment. It was kind of like a, it was almost cliche in the sense of, from a movie standpoint of like, I saw you when you were crying out to me, but I wasn't there. Sorry. Was that your alien but, voice? Or? 
Yeah, right. I work on that. But it was profound because Nathaniel was like, wow, nobody was there. I was crying out to you and here you recognized him. So mm-hmm. maybe you are the one. Maybe this is legit. That whole delayed response thing means more too. You know, John, you mentioned it earlier. Like, why doesn't God hear him when he's actually crying? Well, apparently he does. Why doesn't he let people know? So that's an interesting angle. Well, I think that well, gets think- back to the conversation with Jesus and Simon earlier, where Jesus says to Simon, why don't you ask my father what soon means? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. You know, is it 10 minutes? Is it, you know, 10 days, 10 weeks, 10 months, 10 years? What's soon? Let's see, that's, that's where I was at with the cliche. Like, God answers you when you need the answer type of thing. I don't know. I know mocking that is, is probably frowned upon, but I just, I feel like I hear that all the time. Like, God doesn't always answer your prayers right, well, period, but sometimes he answers them when you need them to be answered. And that time may not be exactly when you think it is. It's like, oh, okay. I understand what you're saying, because I have a hard time with cliches. Yes. Uh, it didn't, <laughs> I didn't notice when I watched the scene, I still found it powerful, but when trying yes. to talk about it, it's like, I don't want to say the cliches because I don't like cliches. <laughs> what was that Jesus said about the word soon? He made a comment there. Was it the most ununderstood word or something he said, a subjective word? I can't remember what he said. Yeah. It's such a... I actually forgot about the John brought it up. I was like, that's actually, he did mention that. It was an interesting kind of little comedy made there about soon. Yeah, like such an interesting word. I wonder what it means. <laughs> or ill-defined or something. Yeah, I think that's what he said, ill-defined or something like that. He said or it was real. It's like when you say to a little kid, it's like, we'll be there soon. When soon? Soon. Shut up. Yeah, except Jesus will make you go away and ponder what you think soon means. <laughs> like, right. What do you think it's defined as? I guess, too, in, in terms of, you know, time, speaking of that, like, Think back to when you were a kid, a half hour car ride. I know for me was the most brutal thing in the entire world. Like, why are we not here? You said we'd be here in just a few minutes. A few minutes has gone by. I'm out of toys to play with. Like nobody's talking to me. (laughs) And now as an adult, I'm like a half hour car ride. I'm like, God, that goes by so fast. (laughs) Think about this, right? So the concept of time is fictitious, right? Humanity is, has made up time and, and the monitoring of hours and days and all that jazz. So if we say that God created the universe and everything, right? Mm-hmm. God doesn't care about time. He didn't make it up. He could care less. So when you say soon, God doesn't care. God's going to do what he does when he does it. And his he did seven days. He created the universe in seven days. Yeah, exactly. Seven days and seven but like He didn't, he didn't sit there and count, right there. I'm laughing because I... But he didn't count it out. Because I'm it not was a just literalist. Like, like on the seventh day, he was like, oh, "All right, I'm gonna rest today." Well, it just so happens that the sun had risen and set six times prior, right? So I just I don't know. So soon is a very vague, broad concept when you talk about God because God didn't create time; people did. Did he though? Because he did create the planets, and time is based on orbit. We count the orbits as humans. We count it. Or you mean they might not mean anything? Everything does what it's going to do. We just happen to put a count reference on it. Oh, man. So do you think that God created day and night? But that's not time. That's just the sun and the earth turning. Like It's oh, yeah. not every 12 hours. So if we're going to have a podcast again in seven moons, 
that's kind of time exactly. that God created already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's it's not. It's just like, hey, man, the moon. I'm just going to clarify this for future <laughs> scheduling purposes. I need a date and a uh, an actual time. I don't give me this seven moons thing. Uh, yeah, what if there's I'm, no moon one night? You're going to get time. Up. You're host. Yeah, <laughs> if there's no moon, you're just done for. Except for I think I mean, when I, you use the word when you use the word soon. If we use this, say, you know, two days from now, and we're measuring day is when it's light again, that's something that's measurable. That we can say, okay, when two times when the sun comes back up, that's two days from now. When you talk about soon, it's not measurable. What the heck is that? What are you, what are you talking about? There's no definitive actual thing of what, what soon is. And I think that's kind of the point that Jesus makes. Just think about it later, though. Monkeys can't tell time. Time <laughs> isn't real to them. We made up time. Sure it is. They can tell seasons. They can tell changes. Yeah. But it's not based on a time. It's the Earth is changing because of an orbit that it's going around the sun. The Earth's going to do what it does. It's not based on a time, though. We put a number and a reference to it, but it's fictitious. No, I I think there's maybe a a slight difference in terms of how we define the term time. But Well, I got to go to work soon. So yeah, (laughs) what do you guys think about final thoughts on on this episode? Do you recommend it or not? And what are you looking forward to? Good episode. Curious to see how we go from here. Hoping the next episode's not the Philip show. <laughs> not your favorite character, huh? If it's about Philip, man, Nick's going to be upset. <laughs> wow. Personally, I think season two, I still stand by 10 times better than season one. It's easier to watch. It's easier to follow along. The acting's better. The episode itself was good. It was solid. I am. Um, game to continue watching and i will do my absolute best to keep it in check and not watch ahead so <laughs> i tend to agree with everything john said i think it's just film better i haven't used any subtitles yet this time around last time i couldn't understand half of what they were saying and so i was doing subtitles i noticed this episode though i thought it was kind of short run up us because i listened to dallas talk for 30 minutes and <laughs> jump into the thing <laughs> I was kind of like, wow, okay dollars. Do what was five million dollars for season three? No, no hundred million dollars for five more. Sorry, sorry, he gets hundred million, he's gonna do five more seasons. What he said, I was like, Wow, okay, you're gonna milk this out for five more seasons. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus dies in season two, but don't worry, I got five more where this comes from. No, he must. I mean, apparently, if you look at how nicer it is this season, I would imagine that there had to be some popularity last season or or something going on where people's donating money or. They liked it enough to where they're, you know, getting new cameras and getting new costumes and doing a little bit better job on on some things and making some corrections that they picked up on from last season. So, I mean, it's got to be picking some momentum up, I would assume. And everybody I talked to, I said, you guys heard The Chosen? Like, yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, I also really enjoyed this episode. Like you guys, I think every episode is getting better than the previous episode. And I'm really curious to see how things are going to be with Jesus's followers going forward because but they've already got several literal blunt people on the team and now here we're going to add somebody else who struggles a little bit with with hubris you know and so that's one more character that might stir up this pot that's one more character that you know Simon was worried about more opinions now he's going to have to deal with somebody else who's more opinionated curious to see how Jesus is going to deal with this And I also liked 
one, learning what that parable actually meant, or that whole fig tree story. I guess that's not a parable. I enjoyed learning what that fig tree story actually was supposed to mean. And I actually like that they're talking about literal structures with Nathaniel's plot, and Simon's trying to figure out the structure of the group. So those two things were probably was supposed to be parallels that I didn't really think about until after the episode was over. So I thought it was very entertaining. I'm going to give it a thumbs up like I have every other episode. But mm-hmm. but this is definitely a step up from most of last season, I think. Except for the children one. Nobody liked the children one except for me. <laughs> I liked yeah, it. Children it was sucks. just different. <laughs> you don't like this is right behind the children in the field episode. Oh, oh you didn't like this one, huh? I just it felt forced. Okay. It's good. Don't get me wrong. It's still better quality. The show's getting better. But the Simpsons felt forced. I don't know. And maybe that's how it's written in the Bible. I don't know. We'll see what you think of the next one then. If it's about Philip, then I'll be excited to see what Nick has to say. I've seen a few I'm, more. And I, I do think each episode is getting better. I'm literally going to watch the third as soon as we get off this. Like that, awesome. That's our plan, me and my wife tonight. Cool. Well, guys, we will be back discussing the third episode soon. So if you want to contact us in the meantime, send us any comments or questions. We actually want to talk about your comments and questions on air here. So contact us through email at breweryministries at gmail.com or on Facebook, which apparently is going to be called Meta soon, through Brewery Ministries or on Instagram at Brewery Ministries. So thank you guys so much. We'll see you later. Thanks for listening to Brewery Ministries' discussion podcast on The Chosen. If you enjoyed this podcast, help spread the word by leaving a five-star review in the Apple Podcast Store, Stitcher, or your podcast store of choice. That's why they call me White Hands, because of what I do to your liver. Contact us on the Brewery Ministries Facebook page, on Instagram at Brewery Ministries, or at breweryministries.org. Send us your questions and comments so we can talk about them on the podcast. It's not enough to say hello. Visit one of our spiritual discussion groups at a brewery or online. Visit breweryministries.org for a list of our discussion groups. You can also download our free discussion guides on spiritual themes in the Book of Mark, the Dark Knight Trilogy, or the Avengers movies at breweryministries.org. That those who do the actual fishing are unholy, foul-mouthed, given to gambling in secret dens, and even fishing on Shabbat. The opinions shared in this podcast are the views of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Brewery Ministries Incorporated. Why must I perform? First I perform for Quintus, you taught then God's for the soldiers, then for, for the slum dwellers. And this, what, what, what sort of performance is this? All music and sound clips included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They're included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. <laughs>